Our scripture reading this morning comes from Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, and Romans 1, 16 and 17. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're looking uh, for the last time for a while uh, at Matthew, looking together for the last time for a while. I hope you're, you'll be continuing to look at Matthew's gospel. But uh, we've been looking at the opening chapters, and uh, we come to the last half of Matthew 4. We took our time with the first half because we see Jesus beginning his ministry in chapter 3 by going with Israelites to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. John says, why, why are you coming to me? I should be going to you. And Jesus says, it's, it's right that we fulfill all righteousness at this time, or it is fitting. It is fitting that we fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus begins right there identifying with us in our brokenness. He is the perfect penitent, as C.S. Lewis used to call him. He's the one who did not need to repent, but who is going to make atonement for us, who begins even then identifying with broken sinners and confessing uh, on our behalf and repenting on our behalf. And the heavens open, the spirit descends on him like a dove, and God the Father says, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Uh, this is the one with whom I'm well pleased. And we would expect Jesus to now have had such a high spiritual experience that he'd be beyond the reach of temptation. And so I wanted us to spend time, and we spent a few weeks, in the beginning of the fourth chapter because the first thing that the Spirit does is to lead Jesus out in the wilderness in order there to be tempted by the devil. And we took that as warnings and as encouragements that I'm not going to reiterate. But uh, we see Jesus there going to the wilderness, which is where God had banished our first parents from the garden. He put them in a good garden. They rebelled against him, and he banished them to the wilderness. And Jesus goes into the wilderness. Again, Israel had to pass through the wilderness for 40 years. He was in the wilderness 40 days. All of these types and shadows that we see in the Old Testament. But he has there 
faced up to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, those three ways that the enemy always comes after us and has shown us that the way to get victory and temptation is through the power of the Spirit within, taking the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and of all things, he takes all three texts from the book of Deuteronomy, a good reminder to us not to scorn any of the scriptures because Jesus goes to Deuteronomy and three times answers Satan with texts from Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test and worship the Lord your God. Him only shall you serve. So he's been to seminary now. He's, uh, he's been to the wilderness. Those of us who've been to seminary can say he's been to seminary, he has graduated, and now he's ready for ministry. So what I'd like for us to do this morning is a very different approach than we used the past few weeks. Instead of threading apart a narrative to look at it in detail, I think it's good for us in this case now as we look at Jesus' model of ministry that he gives us to see it as a series of four pictures. So as I read this, be thinking about the four pictures that, that you see here and that we'll be looking at. We begin in chapter four of Matthew with verse 12. Now when he, that's Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And if we were continuing the study, we would see next week, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and we have the Sermon on the Mount. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. So four pictures that I'd invite you to look at that should serve not just as a picture of Jesus' ministry, but remember that Jesus, John chapter 20 gives a beautiful picture of it, 
Jesus, in his resurrection appearances, said to his disciples as they were gathered in the upper room, still afraid, he breathed on them, said, receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. And he entrusted his ministry to the church and his spirit at Pentecost to the church in such a way that Paul would say that the church is the body of Christ. In other words, the incarnation, God's incarnate enfleshed presence on earth did not end with Jesus' ascension. Jesus ascended, but he poured out his spirit on his church and established us as the continuing body of Christ. In other words, our call is to give God skin here on earth, just the way that Jesus did. That's what he's entrusted to us. So when he gives us pictures of his ministry, he's telling us, follow me. In fact, we heard him here call, and we'll talk about that in a minute, when he called the first disciples, follow me. That's how he calls everyone. He never says, while every eye is closed and every head bowed, and no one's looking around, so no one will ever know, as if we were being asked to take our clothes off in the pew or something. No peeking, no one looking. Now, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, just slip up that hand, slip up that hand. You know, Jesus said, follow me. And of course, at the end of the day, that's what the preachers who say to slip up that hand do. I know, I grew up, my dad was a Baptist pastor, and there's a whole method to it. You slip up that hand, and you think it's over. And then he says, I see that hand, and you're terrified. Oh, no. And then he says, now, while eyes are open and we're singing this song, if you were serious, come forward. See, that's the biblical thing. And you think, I thought I could just slip up that. I didn't mean to get off on this. I'm sorry. (laughs) But what happens, those of you who grew up in Baptist churches, you stand up to sing the final hymn, and you're like, he saw me. I can never come back here again unless I go forward. But I don't want to be the first one. And then you see some people moving around and going. So you say, okay, I'll go too. You step out and you realize it's the deacons who walked up front. It was like, you know, backfield in motion. I was drawn off sides. So anyway, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus said, come follow me. And if we're going to follow him, we need to know where he goes and what his ministry looked like. So four things, four pictures. The first is he has given us a place to minister. Now just stay with me for a minute because you, we're all different places. So what do we have from this? When scripture quotes scripture, it's for a very serious reason. And he says, Jesus now moved up to Capernaum an area that Isaiah the prophet prophesied when he said the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. This is Galilee of the Gentiles. This is the area where good Jewish people didn't want to live. They wanted to be south in Judea. If they were north in, in, in uh, Galilee, then, and remember that Galilee and Judea were separated by Samaria, which was idolatrous country. They didn't want to even walk through it. They'd take a long way around rather than going through Samaria to get between Galilee and Judea. 
So you wanted to get south if you could. If you had to be north, you didn't want to go any further north than Nazareth. But now he's up in the Galilee, which touches up against where the Gentiles live. And this was dangerous spiritual territory. But he'd gone there in order to fulfill the prophecy, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That's why he had come. And that's why he has called you and me. My son lived 15 years in in Hong Kong and worked for a while in the ministry side with a woman who'd been a hero of mine for many years, though I'd never met her until he got to know her and introduced us. Uh, she was a hero. They wrote a book about her and then made a movie called Chasing the Dragon, which is the expression that heroin addicts use in, uh, if they live over in Asia. And she had been Jackie Pullinger, if you've ever heard of her. Jackie had been a beautiful, young, blonde-haired, 60s bird graduating from the Royal Music Academy as this superb oboe player. But God had called her and put on her heart that he wanted her to just follow him radically and trust him. And so she went to her priest and said, her Anglican priest said, you know, God's called me to this. And he said, well, then you just need to follow. But they didn't want to let her in and no one would support her. They said, the last thing we need over there is an oboe player. You've not been to, you've not had theological training, anything. So in faith, she just took her money, got on a boat for Hong Kong. And when she arrived, they didn't even want to let her off because they thought she must be a prostitute because she didn't have a job there. But she finally finagled her way off the ship and she asked a group of Christian people whom she met, where will no one go in Hong Kong? Where is it so dark and wicked that no Christian work is being done? And they said, well, no one will go to the walled city of Kowloon. Its name in Cantonese means darkness. And it's terrifying. And the only people who live there are prostitutes and drug dealers, and it's, it's its own city. The police will not go in there. And they said, but if you walk in there, you won't get 10 yards before you're beaten, raped, and robbed, probably have your throat cut. And she just said, where the world is darkest, the light of Christ can shine the brightest. And she went, and God protected her. And within a short time, the gangs were coming to her to pray for their guys that were too addictive to function anymore. Because when Jackie prayed for them, the Lord would heal them. She's now even a little older than I am. She's still there ministering. But the walled city of Kowloon is gone. It's a beautiful park. And her ministry has been used of God to set free people all over that part of Asia. I was at a, a dinner on, on the island, not on Kowloon, but on Hong Kong Island where all the big money is. And it was a, a fundraiser for a Christian mission. And I was sitting between two very sharp, uh, very successful young Hong Kong Chinese businessmen and one of them said, I understand that your son is working with Jackie Pullinger. 
And I said, yeah, he volunteers for. And he, he laughed and he said, I was one of Jackie's boys. I was born in the walled city of Kowloon. I'd be dead or on drugs if God hadn't used her to get rid of that whole place and to rescue those of us who lived there. Now, why am I telling that story? That's a rare calling. Not many of us are called to be Jackie. Every one of us is called to find the darkest place in our natural relations, the darkest part of our family, the darkest place where we work, the darkest places of our community, and there to pour ourselves out to be lights in the midst of the darkness. Years ago, um, the, the PCA decided that everybody else was reaching the down and outers, and so the PCA missions were going to reach the up and outers. Uh, they were going to target successful, wealthy people. And, and successful, wealthy, up and outers need Christ too. But I was on one of their boards at the time and became tedious to them because my constant argument was there is no such thing as trickle-down spirituality. You can argue over finances and economy, but there's no such thing. That's not how God does it. He always starts at the bottom. His son wasn't born in Rome. He was born in the backside of nowhere. He wasn't born in a lovely home in Israel. He was born in a stable. And I said, how many of your ministries to Harvard University and to uh, Congress, how many have been asked to address Congress and how many have been asked to address Harvard University? Mother Teresa has. Why? If you want to reach the king's ear, change the situation of the beggar at his gate. If you want to turn the world upside down, care for the poorest of the poor. And that's what God blesses. And it just reaches up. Why was Jesus always in trouble with the religious people? It was the religious who rejected him in Israel. It was because they said, why isn't he sitting at table with us? He's over there with the bad people. He's always with the the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the people that he should know. If he knew who that woman was, he wouldn't let her touch him. Remember that saying? He knew who she was. Brothers and sisters, can't stay too long on this first picture, but the most strategic thing that you and I can do is to try to shine the light of Christ into the darkest places that we have natural access to, whether it's in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our community. We tend to run from those, and we want to be where the light's already shining. But we're called to bring the light to the dark. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Secondly, he gives us not just a place, but he gives us a message. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then in verse 23, when summarizing his ministry, this is called the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom is repent. Here's the king. Now, it's easy for those of us who have not studied the, the Roman Empire during this period of time 
not to recognize how absolutely subversive the very language of the early Christians was. They called Jesus the Son of God. They called him Savior. They called him Lord. They called their announcement of him the gospel, the euangelion from which we get evangelist and evangelism and evangelical. It's the word for good news. All of those terms were used in that culture for Caesar and his family. Caesar was called the Son of God. Caesar was called Savior. Caesar was called Lord. And in fact, the early Christians were put to death for refusing once a year to go up to the Caesar temple, put a pinch of incense on the altar, and say publicly, Caesar is Lord. To survive in the empire, you, you could worship whomever you wanted, provided you admitted that there was one Lord over all, and that was Caesar. But these Christians said, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is the Son of God. The, the announcement of the good news of the kingdom is repent from all these false idols that you've been worshiping, whether Caesar, whether your cultural position, whether your wealth, your power, whatever it is, whatever you think gives your life ultimate meaning, you're turning that good gift into an idol, and idols are only fit for destruction. So repent, repent, repent. I think the biggest problem in gospel preaching churches today is that we've lost the call to repentance. We think it's a one-shot thing at the beginning, but we want to start talking about the grace of God. In the Bible, it wasn't done that way. Jesus said, repent. Paul, Romans, he says, in our first lesson, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of all those who believe. And what's the next thing he does? He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth. We've got to recapture that. I'm praying that this beautiful, what looks like a beautiful movement of the Holy Spirit begun in Asbury and now spreading other places. I'm praying that this becomes the great awakening that we desperately need leading to real reformation of our culture. But if it doesn't involve repentance from sin, it won't. It will burn out. Repentance is something for the Christian every day. It's not confession. We've talked about this before, but you can, you know, I could go in any bar in town and say, you know, have you sinned? Yeah, let me tell you about it. People are willing, you don't need the Holy Spirit to confess. But you need the Holy Spirit to repent, which is to start looking at it all a totally different way and turning your back and going in a new direction. You're not going to be perfect, but there's a new trajectory to your life. As I often say, we all know the difference between an obedient and a disobedient child. An obedient child isn't perfect, and a disobedient child sometimes does the right thing, but we're talking trajectories of life. And the Christian is to be someone who goes his way, who goes her way, repenting. I was for years in a uh, small group that met on on a three-day retreat once a year down in Atlanta and got to know some wonderful brothers who had really spoke to my heart. And one who you will know, Tim Keller, we would always share our own devotional life and kind of how we were doing spiritually as part of this retreat. And 
something that Tim would say just arrested me and it was such a great lesson. He said, I have to repent my way into joy every day. And he said, when I meet somebody who is a joyless professing Christian, I realize that they're joyless because they haven't learned to repent. Because it's only as you look honestly at your life, at the idols in your heart that keep, John Calvin said, our hearts are idol-making factories. You know, you go to bed and thank you, Lord, sweet devotional time, great prayers, you wake up in the morning, oh my, you know, here I am again. And so you begin by confessing and repenting and you repent your way back into the joy and power of the gospel. You realize the king has come. He is the savior. He is Lord. He is mightier than everything against me. He loves me knowing everything about me and has made this way for me, not just to be forgiven and sit in the back, but I, I mean, those of you who sit in the back, we know, <laughs> we know you're with us all the way. But I mean, speaking spiritually, we don't have to hide out. He hasn't just said, okay, I'll forgive you, but keep out of my way. He wants you all in, all in. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is great good news. This is the good news of the gospel. He's come. He has given us, thirdly, a community in which to exercise ministry and grow. What's the first thing Jesus did? He called people to be with him. He walked along the sea and he said, Come, follow me. Come, follow me. We see him at times when he's weary from ministry, taking them away just, just to be with them. That's so moving to me. You know, I don't think he had an agenda. I don't think he had PowerPoint presentations, you know, that he was doing. He just wanted to sit with them and eat a meal and just be restored in friendship and fellowship with these guys who in the end all ran away and betrayed him. It's good for us guys to always remember that it was the women who stayed with him to the end and went to the cross with him. The men all ran away. And knowing that they would, and knowing that the night before they'd fallen asleep, those closest to him, when he brought them into the garden and said, you know, watch with me, as he agonized, facing, becoming the sin bearer. And he went three times and found them sleeping and said, could you not watch with me one hour? Chuck Swindoll said, every pastor would like that put on the cornerstone of his church. Could you not watch with me one hour? <laughs> Stay with me. So there's a community. Now, if, you, if you're a Christian and, and this is your congregation now, whether you're a member or not, if this is where you find yourself coming to worship, we can't care for you. We can't do right by you unless you initiate a connection of some sort. We can invite, and we've got all kinds of different ways for you to connect, and, and small groups can look many different ways. Some are focused on a particular ministry, some on Bible study, some on service in the diaconal ministries in the community. But Jesus established community around himself, a little group that was going to be with him all the time. I, uh, I don't think I've told you this. I really got my comeuppance. I'm 
typical American, when I travel, I want my own room, thank you. Uh, I don't want to share a room with anybody. And now that I'm an old man, I want to be able to get up and down at night without worrying about waking someone up. Um, so I was at a conference for World Evangelical Alliance down in Iguazu Falls uh, in Brazil. If you saw the mission, it was the falls they climbed up. And we were going to have this big conference, and I was talking with the great Sri Lankan Christian leader, Ajit Fernando, who was an old friend. He and I were walking up in line. And I was first, so I went up and I immediately was like, now, I, I, I have a single room, right? Yes, yes, we have it for you. And good, good. And then I waited to speak to Ajit, and they said, and we have a, a single room for you, Dr. Fernando. And he said, oh, no, no, no. And he turned around, and there was this man standing behind him who he obviously didn't know from one of the African countries who was a delegate. And he said, brother, are you here with anyone? And the man said, no. And Ajit said, would you be willing to share a room with me? Um, he said, I just, I, I want someone to pray with and someone to hold me accountable during this conference. If there's a TV there, I don't want to be tempted to watch something I shouldn't want. You, you'll help me so much. Now, Ajit was one of the lead speakers there and needed, I would think, time to himself. He understood that the body of Christ, this isn't just an, a negotiable extra. We need one another. We need one another. Boy, did I feel like the ugly American standing there. I was like, <laughs> I, said, I said, just call me Mahatma. And I'm, um, Jesus has given us a community, and it's the church, but you've got to plug in to a group of people who get to know you and whom you know so that if the wheels come off, they're there for you, and you're there for them when the wheels come off in their life. And meanwhile, you're encouraging and strengthening and building one another up. You won't grow if you don't have that. I preached that for years, and back in the early 90s, after a sermon where I'd preached it, a bunch of the men walked up and said, John, who are your guys? And I was like, well, you know, my job's to tell you to do it. Yours is to do it. <laughs> and I was so convicted, I immediately put together a group of guys that we've been now for 35 years meeting together. And I, it's one of the best things that, best gifts God has ever given me. So Jesus did that, and he gave us a community, a family to surround us. And then finally, he gave us a picture of how you do it. He gave us a picture of what every congregation needs to be about. And it's three things. It is teaching, and we know because he immediately goes into the Sermon on the Mount. What was he teaching? He was teaching the law of God and the, the lessons from the scriptures, which at that point were just the Old Testament. That's all they had. Remember, whenever they talk about the scripture in the New Testament, they're talking about what we call the Old Testament. And so Jesus is expounding the scriptures. So that's teaching, and that's what we're supposed to be doing. Secondly, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's the message that all of this points to Jesus and only finds its meaning in the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the enthronement of the one who is going to at last come back and make all things new. That's our declaration. 
We're not, in C.S. Lewis's words, we're not here to try to make nice people. We're here to make new people. We're to be new. And then finally, deacons, listen up, baby. The whole ministry of compassion and mercy, they brought him everybody that was broken and sick and hurting, and he cared for them, he healed them. That is the supreme diaconal ministry. Because now we have buildings and budgets and things, the deacons take that, as they did in the book of Acts, to make sure that it was all handled appropriately. But the, the main calling of deacons is the whole, basically the deacons are supposed to prove everything that the elders are talking about. We talk about Christ came to make all things new, he came to do it all, change, came to change our relationships, came to, and the deacons actually say to the church, okay, we've got somebody hurting over here. Okay, we've got somebody who needs our help. We've got, and the deacons lead us into the incarnational ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. That's what the church is to look like. He's given us a place, the darkest places around us. He's given us a message, the gospel of the kingdom. Repent, the king has come. The king reigns, not the kings of this world. The, the king. That's why, it, if I can say as an aside, whatever your political leanings, and I have a sneaking suspicion, I know where most of you are. I once asked Cedar Springs, can a Democrat get saved in this church? <laughs> but if you're a Democrat, we're grateful you're here. You're for our diversity initiative. We, really, thank God you're here. We need, we, need, we need the whole spectrum of the body of God. Okay, I'll get emails for that. I'm sorry. Um, place, message, community, and a model of ministry. Teaching, proclaiming, healing. So let's do it. He's given it to us. He's given it to us. This is who we are. Would you stand? Father, thank you so much that you've entrusted the ministry of Jesus to us, your work of the kingdom. You've given it to us. And it's our greatest joy when we actually get about that business. And I thank you that you are able to take the places where we work for a living and turn those into areas of ministry and life I thank you that you can use families, not just uh, at the places where we're having a good time, but sometimes when it seems darkest, you want right in that place for the light to shine the brightest. And you've given us one another. So may we be faithful through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and our King.